0: Stand clear of the closing doors,
1: please. In a Brooklyn fractured into speculative storyscapes, fantasy, horror, sci fi, and the just plain weird come together in The Kaleidocast. Join Professor Brad Overstreet.
2: Senior Junior Lecturer Sam Spellingbound, and Assistant Crypto Provost Don Fairweather Jenkins of the Metatechnic Institute, and Inquisitor
1: James Earl King II, as they explore the stories drifting in and out of your reality.
3: Now, who could that be? Sam? Hello, Brad. What's going on? I thought I'd see you at the office tomorrow. I found it, Brad. The big one. Ah, uh, found what? A genuine Jonathan Lethem. Oh well, I—that's wonderful. I'm not sure why it couldn't wait until morning. You don't understand, but... Brad. Oh. A find like
4: this, there's a price. There's always a price. Okay.
3: So what was? I'm the- getting
4: there. Fine. This isn't like anything we've gone after before. What was that? You see, Brad. Sometimes you collect the story, and sometimes the story collects
3: you. No, no, it isn't possible. Oh, oh you, you better believe, believe, it, believe
2: it, Overland.
3: Overstreet. Whatever. What have you done with Sam?
5: Spellingbound's dead. Been so for a while now. But to deal with your meddling, I've got something more... delicious in mind.
3: What meddling?
5: Honestly, this is going to take all day if you keep asking... Hey!
3: Give that back! Get back here! You can't escape into the story! Overland! Overstream!
2: The Insipid Profession of Jonathan Hornbaum It was nearly dark. Jonathan Hornbaum rushed along the sidewalk of 4th Street toward Barrow, terrified. He had to get home and see if the awful thing had recurred. He jostled a pair of tie-loosened businessmen as they strolled away from the subway and nearly knocked into a teenager who was attempting to climb the curb with a skateboard. "'Watch it, dude!' "'Sorry,' muttered Hornbaum as the teenager clacked away. "'At Barrow Street, he fumbled open his ironwork gate "'and went into the entrance under the stoop to his studio. "'He pushed past the old canvases, "'those that had already received the damaging marks "'and those that had escaped, "'to the easel on the back wall "'where his newest work sat covered. "'He pulled the sheet aside and then recoiled in horror. "'The child in the foreground was just as he'd painted,' Eyes wide and shimmering, brimming with tears. The background, a field of flowers, was intact. But the sky, across his soft blue and white sky, was another of the horrendous shapes a terrifying black cyclone of bones and tendons, a bird beast with shining black eyes that mocked those of the child. The shapes were, as always, painted into his work flawlessly, as if by his own hand. Indeed, he had to suspect his own hand, for want of other suspects. But the additions were unimaginably gruesome, visions he could barely stomach, let alone originate. The changes in the paintings forced him to confront the gaps in memory that made a patchwork of his days. He'd tried to ignore the inconsistencies. What was the importance of a lost hour now and again? Amnesia he could live with. But if he was capable of committing these unspeakable desecrations of his work— What else might he be doing during the missing hours? Or could there actually be a hidden tormentor, some mastermind capable of timing his attacks on the paintings to coincide with Hornbaum's blackouts? Enough. He had to know. Harriet was about to close up the office and go upstairs to her apartment when the phone rang. She thought about letting the machine pick it up anyway, and then she thought about her bank balance and reached for the receiver.
0: I, Is this Harriet M. Welch, the investigator?
2: The voice had a slight German accent. Right, she said.
0: My name is Jonathan Hornbaum. I'd like to talk to you if I could. Talk? I'd rather...
2: You mean in person?
0: Could I? Your office address is quite near.
2: I'll be here for another half an hour, she said, putting her feet back up on the desk. She opened her drawer and took out the catalog that had come that day from Willie E.'s surveillance supplies and half a tomato sandwich left over from her lunch. When Hornbaum pressed the doorbell, she buzzed him in without looking up. But when he entered the room, she pushed the catalog into the trash basket along with the sandwich wrapping. The products were crap. She smiled up at Hornbaum and said, Mind if I smoke?
0: No, no,
2: he said and shook his head. She lit a cigarette. Sit down. She watched him put himself in the seat across her desk. He was younger than she'd guessed, but seeing his primness and reserve, she understood her mistake. He was dressed like a character actor, in a gray suit, cravat, white gloves and a bowler. His hair was white, but it still covered his head, and his pinched, severe features were overwhelmed by his eyes. They were deep-set, ringed, and huge. An eagle's eyes, if he'd met her gaze. Instead, they darted away. What can I do for you, Mr. Hornbaum?
0: I... I can't explain. I'm afraid it may be the stupidest thing you've ever heard.
2: That's a contest you can't hope to win. What's the problem? A woman? A business arrangement that soured?
0: I... Have blackouts.
2: Hornbaum managed. Harriet frowned. You drink? Never. I'm not a doctor.
0: I'm not looking for one. Not yet, at least. I need to know what goes on during my missing time, because something's happened to my work. Your work? I'm a painter, and someone or something is changing my work while I'm out.
2: Changing how? Harriet stubbed out her cigarette, not sure whether she was intrigued or annoyed.
0: Adding to my paintings. Terrible things.
2: Okay, wait a minute. You make a living from painting? Her skepticism showed in her voice. He didn't look the type.
0: Well, yes.
2: So you're good. Or famous, anyway, because you have to be to make a living from art, right?
0: I have a reputation.
2: She worked the story out of him. He lived alone, in his own brownstone, his studio in the basement apartment. She upped her fee, mentally. The gaps in his memory were not in themselves disruptive. He'd find himself in the park, or in front of his television, or seated in a restaurant with no memory of how he'd gotten there. But never anywhere unexpected or unlikely. Then, two weeks ago, he'd returned to his studio to find the first of the alterations. Nightmarish, beaked-and-taloned things looming in his skies. Defacements, but expert ones. Either some ingenious tormentor, with more knowledge of Hornbaum's comings and goings than he himself possessed, was destroying his work, or, more horrifying to contemplate, he was destroying it himself.
0: I want to be followed,
2: Hornbaum concluded.
0: I want you to track me like a suspect in a crime. Find out what I do, where I go. I'll pay you for a full report. And if it's not me committing the artistic atrocities...
2: Would you want him arrested? He shuddered.
0: Report to me first, please. Let me decide.
2: Does anyone else have a key to the studio? Hornbaum shook his head.
0: My housekeeper has the upstairs key, but there's no interior stair. It was designed as a separate apartment. I have the only key.
2: I'll need a copy, Harriet said. She was captivated now by the problem, the logistics, the possibility that Hornbaum was merely insane. She shunted to a rear part of her brain. She wanted a puzzle to solve, a locked-room mystery, and she wanted more of the checks that Hornbaum now wrote out so readily with his trembling, gloved hands, one for her first day of work, and one as a standing retainer. She wanted a series of them, to pad the lining of her hemorrhaging bank account. Assuming the first one didn't bounce, that was— He was as seedy as he was dandified. And from what Harriet had seen of the young MTV fresh Soho art scene, Hornbaum couldn't cut it in that crowd. He agreed to bring her a copy of the key in the morning and to slide it under her door if she was not in. What she didn't say was that she meant to be on his tail by then. The guy was nervous enough as it was. 3. He started with coffee and a pastry at an Italian bakery on 6th Avenue, then walked uptown until he found a locksmith's. She followed him back to her office where he rang, waited, and finally slipped the copied key under her door. Then back to Barrow Street. He went downstairs into the studio, and she set up with the newspaper on a stoop across the street. It was a nice enough day to be paid to kill time on the prettiest street in Manhattan. When he emerged again an hour later... She ducked down behind her paper. He swiveled on his heel and strode up the street at twice his previous speed. She gave him half a block and started after, quelling a pang of curiosity about the studio itself. She still didn't have a key in hand, and anyway, he looked like a man on a mission. Her heart was pounding. The old game. Still magic. Just give me someone to follow, she thought, and I'm a kid again. On seventh, he hailed a cab. She jumped into the street and grabbed the next one, commanding the driver to follow. He raised his eyebrows but didn't say anything. Hornbaum's cab shot uptown, jerking through traffic, catching stretches of timed lights, then squeaking to a stop every block, for six or seven red lights in a row. And Harriet followed. Several times they swam together in block-long seas of identical yellow cabs, and Harriet had to help the driver stick to Hornbaum's. They crossed town at 53rd Street, and finally pulled to the curb in front of the Museum of Modern Art. Hornbaum paid his driver and sped into the lobby of the building, and Harriet had to surrender a 20 in her haste to follow. $6 tip, but she'd charge it all to Hornbaum. She pushed through the crowds milling in the outer lobby just in time to catch sight of him paying for his ticket and passing on into the museum. Fair enough. Painter wants to look at paintings. Was he in his blackout phase? She couldn't know. She got in line for a ticket and watched him heading up a packed escalator. She handed over her ticket and hurried through the turnstile, but the escalator was too crowded for her to do anything but stand still and wait her turn. And when she got up to the top, he was nowhere to be seen. She ducked into the permanent collection, a labyrinth of gigantic paintings that seemed to Harriet mostly flat fields of bright color, and scouted the rooms, searching for a glimpse of his white hair. He was not there. She took the escalator up another floor. The exhibition was labeled Anxious Furniture, Surrealist and Dada Objects in Sculpture, 1916-1948. And it seemed to be what had drawn the crowds. Perhaps it had drawn Hornbaum. She jostled her way into the first of the rooms. The admirers of the vast paintings downstairs had to stand in the middle of the rooms to take in their full scope. But the displays here were in glass cases and were mostly quite small so the crowds bunched tight around them. Harriet found it completely annoying. She wanted to poke the groups apart to see if Hornbaum was hiding in among them. Instead, she bumped her way around from behind, trying to ignore the inanely reverent comments. She didn't know anything about anxious furniture, but she had the distinct feeling she was in a room full of jokes being taken seriously. She was ready to declare him lost and go back to explore his studio, when suddenly there he was, standing still in a stream of moving bodies in front of one of the glass cases. She let a few people pass, then found a place in the group around him a few heads back. Standing up on her toes, she looked over his shoulder. There were three objects in the case. On the left, a teacup, saucer, and spoon, all normally proportioned but covered completely in fur. On the right, a metronome topped with an eye, or a photograph of an eye, and otherwise unaltered. In the middle was an object that seemed a combination of printing press and toy cannon, two-foot-high wheels with a complex assembly of rollers and handles suspended between them, and a gun barrel pointing out at the viewer. Hornbaum stood alone, seemingly frozen there, while groups filled in around him and trickled away to be replaced again and again. Harriet began to think he was in blackout mode now, whether or not he had been on his way up here. But no, Harriet suddenly noticed— Hornbaum wasn't alone. Another man stood as an island in the stream of ogglers. He was young, a few years younger than Harriet, with a little beard that did more to reveal his age than to hide it. He had set up a little to one side of the case and was staring intently at the exhibit. Harriet watched as the younger man became aware of Hornbaum, who was planted so conspicuously in front of the case. She melted back farther into the crowd to watch without the risk of being noticed herself. The younger man squinted at Hornbaum as though recognizing him, then looking back at the case, took out a small, spiral-bound notebook and began jotting notes with the pencil. Harriet reflexively patted at the notebook she kept in the kangaroo pocket of her sweatshirt. The younger man went on writing, staring at the objects in the case, and occasionally glancing up at Hornbaum. Hornbaum remained seemingly oblivious, his gaze fixed on the middle object in the case. Suddenly self-conscious of her participation in their odd threesome, She shuffled along to the next case and followed the flow around the adjacent room, glancing back every few minutes to confirm Hornbaum's presence. Finally, she allowed herself to risk losing him and finished the loop of the exhibition, which deposited her back at the entrance. She peered in. They were both still there. She started in again and nonchalantly scooted up behind the young man with the beard. In his notebook was a sketch of the cannon slash printing press. He looked up suddenly and around. She turned her head the other way and walked quickly off. As for Hornbaum, an hour had passed since she'd followed him to the museum, and still, he stood entranced. She went downstairs, and keeping her eye on the flow through the exit gates, leafed through the exhibition catalog on the gift counter. She found photographs of all three objects in the case. The teacup was labeled Breakfast in Fur by Murray Oppenheim. The metronome was Object of Destruction, by Man Ray. And the device in the middle, the one the man with the beard had been sketching, was Bird Camera, by Max Ernst. Harriet was hungry and tired of the museum. She went and found the sandwich counter in the courtyard, turning her back for the moment on the exit. If Hornbaum escaped, she'd go back downtown and check his house, and if he wasn't home, she could inspect the studio. A good plan. She treated herself to roast beef and a large Coke, on the client. By the time she was done, the crowd had thinned. She went upstairs. At first, she thought they were both gone. Then she spotted the bearded man sitting on a bench across the room from the glass case. He looked up, and for the second time she had to turn quickly to keep from meeting his eyes. Sloppy, she chided herself. She scooted into the next room, then turned and looked back. He was gone from the bench. Well, never mind. It was Hornbaum she should be troubling with. Where was he? Hello. She turned around to find the young man with the beard standing before her, smiling. Hello, she said. Are you with
5: the security staff?
2: He asked, still smiling pleasantly. What?
5: Here, at the museum.
2: No, no, excuse me. She craned her neck around, worrying that Hornbaum was in the room.
5: Because you seem to be watching me or following me or something.
2: Not you, forget it.
5: The old guy, then? The one staring at the Ernst thing?
2: Quiet, she commanded. They were attracting attention.
5: He left, if that's what you're worried about. So if you weren't following me, would you have a coffee with me?
2: Shh, I I just had a Coke. Where did he go? No, don't talk. Let's go downstairs. They made their way to the garden. Harriet led him to a table in the farthest corner and sat so that she commanded a view of the entire yard behind him. You don't work for the museum either, she suggested.
5: Nope. I'm rich. Uh, Richard DeBronck. I'm a student. A graduate student, I mean.
2: At Hunter. Professional loafer, Harriet supplied to herself. It fit his bumbling manner, and her suspicion of him eased. Well, I'm Harriet Welsh, she said. What do you know about the man you saw today, Mr. DeBronck?
5: What do I know about, well... What do you know? I mean, why should I tell you? If you're not working for the museum, what are you doing asking me questions?
2: You asked me out, Richard. This is a date. This is my feeble conversational tack. Have you ever seen that man before? DeBronk assumed a thoughtful pose.
5: I don't think so.
2: He squinted at Harriet.
5: But he did look kind of familiar. Are you some kind of cop?
2: Have you seen him in the exhibit upstairs before?
5: Are you suggesting I have nothing better to do than stand around in museums all day?
2: He tried on an indignant expression and then discarded it with a shrug. You
5: do work for MoMA, don't you? You saw me here before.
2: You're making spontaneous confessions, Mr. DeBronck. She wanted to strangle him. I don't care if you live in the museum. Can you help me by answering my questions straight, or am I wasting my time? Who is he?
5: I swear I know his face.
2: His name is Jonathan Hornbaum. He's...
5: That's Hornbrum? You mean Hornbrum, the crying clown
2: painter? He's a painter, yes. DeBronk literally slapped his knee as he laughed.
5: <laughs> I don't believe it.
2: What's so funny? She felt a protectiveness of her case of her client. You know those
5: wide-eyed dogs and mimes and little ragamuffin kids? You must know them. He's just, like, the worst painter in the history of the 20th century. I can't believe that's really him. I thought it was dead.
2: Well, I guess not, assuming we're talking about the same man.
5: There couldn't be two. God.
2: He shook his head. I guess I'm not too familiar with contemporary art, Harriet said. This would
5: be more like familiar with contemporary dentist offices,
2: said Debranc.
5: I can't believe a guy like that would show his face around here. Or want to. I mean, what do you think he was seeing up there?
2: I'd like very much to know.
5: What's the deal? Why are you following
2: him? I'm not really at liberty to discuss it, and I should go. Here is my card. Please get in touch if you think of anything useful. She stood up.
5: Is this your home phone? Can I see you again?
2: Leave a message.
5: What are you doing tonight?
2: She saw him through his window, upstairs from her place on the stoop across the street. The studio key was in her pocket now, but she didn't quite dare to investigate it, with him upstairs and awake, maybe after he was asleep. She went to 7th Avenue for cigarettes, then paced his block, smoking for nearly an hour. Nothing. She spotted him behind the curtains a few times, passing between rooms, sitting, reading in a chair. "'You are boring, sir.' she reported to him in her head. That'll be $5,000. Or maybe you'd like to leave me your house in your will. On her fourth cigarette, the sun finished setting. She was just about to head back to her apartment when Hornbaum appeared at the top of his stoop, locking his door and tightening his scarf around his neck. She hurried around the corner and watched as he headed for seventh. In the dark, she was more confident following close at his heels, and she tailed him to Waverly Place, where he went into the Coach House restaurant. Here it was her chance at his studio. She clutched the key in her pocket and half ran back to Barrow. She felt her excitement rise as she finally crossed the street and went through his gate. As a child, her delight had been entering houses surreptitiously. House-sitting or babysitting, she'd always made copies of the neighbor's keys and returned, uninvited, later to drink in the feel of their lives, the traces that lay everywhere. She'd learned about adult life that way, Except the adult life she'd made for herself was nothing like that, contained none of the vulnerabilities. What she hadn't told the graduate student at the museum was that the office number was her home number. She skimped on bills by not keeping a phone upstairs. Her little apartment was nearly bare, would tell an intruder nothing. She'd made her childhood spying her work, and she'd made her work her life. She unlocked the basement door and slipped inside into near-total darkness— Street light trickled in through the half-windows, and it occurred to Harriet suddenly that Hornbaum had made an odd choice putting the studio in the basement. No natural light. If he owned the entire brownstone, why not the top floor? She remembered the graduate student laughing in the garden at the museum. She groped along the wall for the light switch, and when she found it, flicked it on. There stood Hornbaum, wearing a madly smeared smock that reached the floor and holding a dripping brush. He whipped around, exposed in the light, and she saw, in place of his head, the head of a monstrous bird, black eyes shining, beak narrowly open to reveal a pointed pink tongue nestled there and curling at the sight of her. Then it was gone, her vision, and instead the human horn bomb borne down on her. He scumbled with his brush on the palette in his left hand, then raised it to her.
0: Do you need repainting, my dear?
2: Her hand instinctively flicked the switch back down, as though the light had called him into being. "'He couldn't have been painting in the dark,' went her wild thoughts, "'so he hadn't been there at all. Her legs, finding this logic not quite satisfactory, carried her stumbling backwards and out. She turned and ran through the gate and across the street. A woman was walking a small dog, and woman and dog looked up at Harriet as she fled the house. The street was quiet and astonishingly normal.' Harriet looked back. The basement was dark, of course, and there was no way of knowing if someone was inside. Harriet stopped and looked back. The dog walker passed. Nobody came out of the basement studio. Face burning with confusion and anger, Harriet half-walked, half-ran back to the coach house. There was Hornbaum, at a table in the back, sipping fussily from a glass of wine, looking near the end of his meal. She turned away an urged to burst in and demand an explanation. Instead, ducked her head from the restaurant window and hurried home, suddenly terrified and chilled to her heart by the night wind. As she let herself into her building, she heard the phone ringing behind her office door. She went into her office and listened as her answering machine picked up the call.
5: Hi, it's Richard DeBronk. We talked today, and I was just wondering, even though I don't really have any useful information for you, I mean about the crying clown man. Whether you might want to have a drink with me or something later tonight. Or if tonight's not good.
2: She grabbed the phone and switched off the machine. Hi, where do you want to meet?
5: Oh, hello. You're there. I, uh, I guess I didn't think of a place. I wasn't actually expecting... White Horse
2: Tavern. It's on Hudson and 11th.
5: Wow, great. I guess you probably need some time.
2: I'll be there in ten minutes. Where are you coming from?
5: Chelsea, no problem. I'll be there soon. Uh, great.
2: Harriet was cold and afraid, the universe having opened a gap she couldn't begin to account for. Her fear made her jump at an invitation she would otherwise ignore. Within half an hour, she had herself shrouded in the almost medieval coziness and gloom of the white horse, bolstered from within by Irish coffee, and enveloped in the loopy, discursive talk that was looking to be Richard de trademark.
5: Five. the Freudian content of Max Ernst's work, the interrelations between some of his imagery and specific case studies in Freud, right? Good, solid research topic, you know? I mean, the surrealists all worked with dream imagery, automatic writing, they all loved pseudo-scientific techniques, so it's not a revolutionary thesis, but I'm explicating the details. Nailing it down, right? Art history departments are built on this kind of stuff. There's thesis work like this piled up to the ceiling. They give you your assistant professorship and then burn the dissertation to keep warm. So I was just digging around, verifying dates of paintings and collages so nobody could screw me up questioning the lines of influence and stuff. With historical assertions, it's like proving plagiarism in court. You have to demonstrate access. The connections can't just seem fertile from our vantage point. It has to have been at least possible that it would occur to the people involved. Okay, so I was working on sources for Ernst collage novels. You've seen Ernst collage novels, right?
2: Uh, no.
5: Oh god, you've got to, they're great. A Hundred Headless women, and Un de Bante, which translates to something like A One Week of Kindness. There are all these pictorial novels made up of collages. Well, at least everybody thinks they're collages, but I'll get to that. Anyway, there are all these really striking images of people with rooster heads lion heads easter island statue heads and they're all in these domestic melodrama situations performing these bizarre acts on each other it's this vision of the world as a surreal nightmare an endless series of revelations of monstrous things just under the surface so you can see why it relates so well to freud it's like Ernst is exposing the unconscious reality. I follow. Well, okay. So it's widely asserted that Ernst's source material for these pictures, these hundreds of collages, was woodcut illustrations from Victorian pulp magazines and children's books, right? Because they look like those kinds of illustrations, everybody just made this assumption. Only a handful of the Ernst originals even exist. What everybody's working from are the published books. Well, I went back to the originals. I dug them out of some private collections, and I discovered something very weird. They're original engravings.
2: Maybe you've lost me.
5: They're not cut up and pasted together. You can't find any of the seams. What's passing for original collages are single, engraved images. If some kind of combining of elements ever occurred... It was at some earlier stage, and then Ernst, for no apparent reason, painstakingly reproduced his collages as original engravings, and nobody has any of the earlier versions, the actual collages, but that's not even the weirdest thing.
2: Okay, I'm baited. What's the weirdest thing?
5: The presumed sources don't exist. The images originate with Ernst. No... Illustration anywhere corresponds to any part of any collage. I've wasted six months searching every possible archive, and now I'm sure. The collages have no sources.
2: DeBranc couldn't mask the triumph on his face. Didn't even really try. This is a big deal, Harriet suggested tentatively. This is a huge
5: deal. This is my career being made, because discoveries like this aren't just lying around everywhere.
2: So the object in the case, at the museum?
5: Well, now I'm trying to track down the real process. The methods Ernst used to create these images that he pretended were collages. He didn't own engraving tools of that type during the years the collage novels appeared. I've opened up huge mysteries about his process, his motives. And I want to try to solve some of that myself. Presenter finished package when I dropped this bombshell, you know. Just before the collage novels appeared, Ernst created the object in the case, the bird camera. There are numerous sketches for it in his notebooks. Unlike a lot of famous surrealist objects, it wasn't just tossed off. It's a very complicated design. The plans for it have generally been regarded as a sort of elaborate hoax, a pretense that it had some function. That kind of coy cryptoscience is very typical of Surrealists. So everyone just always assumed that it was a non-functional object. A pretend machine. But after Ernst created Bird Camera, he didn't sell it. Wouldn't let it out of his studio. Even took it with him when he traveled, and it's a pretty bulky object.
2: You think?
5: I'm sure of it. It's an image fabrication machine. Some weird, unique design that Ernst came up with. The collages began appearing right after the bird camera was finished.
2: Can you prove it?
5: Museum won't let me near it. It's on loan from a museum in France. Ernst had to leave it behind when he fled the war. It'll be in New York for two more weeks, then back to Paris. You know it's insured for millions of bucks. It's fragile as hell. All that stuff is. Because the Surrealists weren't really sculptors. They just threw their things together, and I'm just a nobody graduate student. If I tell them why I want to see it, I blow my scoop. Wow. Yeah, wow. Uh, you want another drink?
2: He went to the bar and brought back two more Irish coffees.
5: Decaf, don't worry. So, now you. What? Your turn. You have to tell me what you were doing at the museum card says investigator, but I don't even know what that means.
2: Harriet was brought unexpectedly back to Hornbaum. She wondered if Richard DeBronck could see her stiffen. I'm a researcher, she said, like you. Sometimes it involves footwork. Hornbaum led me to the museum. I still don't know what he was doing there, but I'll find out. DeBronck made a face.
5: Come on, context, context. Why are you following the crying clown man?
2: Harriet sighed, and some of the tightness in her chest eased. He hired me. It's an unusual case. He's been suffering blackouts, and somebody's changing his paintings.
5: (laughs) That can only be a good thing,
2: said Debranc, grinning. Well, he doesn't think so. He hired me to investigate. And? I don't know. I went to his studio tonight while he wasn't there, and something was wrong.
5: His studio? You have the key to his studio.
2: She nodded. He put his hand on her arm.
5: Take me there.
2: No! He put his hands together, pleadingly.
5: I promise not to tell anyone, but it's irresistible. It's too funny. I have to see it, please. Please.
2: No, stop! I don't want to talk about this anymore. I shouldn't. It's a breach that I told you anything. Sorry. She shivered. Too much alcohol. Too much caffeine. Too many questions. Listen, thanks for calling. It was interesting hearing your story. I've got to get to bed. Six. Harriet switched on the television to drown out her thoughts as she fell asleep. She caught the end of the opening credits of the Midnight Movie. Directed by Alfred Hitchcock. As she climbed into her bed. Perfect. She built a fort of pillows and blankets around her, and settled in to watch. It wasn't one she'd seen. A classic Hitchcock icy blonde, and a hunkish hero were flirting in a pet shop. An amiable enough opening, but Harriet knew Hitchcock. Sure enough, the situation quickly darkened. A possessive mother had her claws in the hero. A pair of lovebirds were purchased at the pet shop by the blonde, intended as a gift for the hunk, but undeliverable, a symbol of something Harriet was sure. Then real trouble began. The lovebirds began to swell and deform, bursting the bounds of the wire cage until they were the shape and size of men cloaked in feathery three-piece suits. They shook themselves loose of the shards of cage like chickens freeing themselves of eggshells, cocked their heads briefly at one another, and then climbed through the frame of Harriet's television set and into her bedroom. Mademoiselle Welsh Wilch, said the slimmer of the two birds,
1: we must speak with you. Interloper, meddler, hypocrite,
2: said the stout one. Harriet tried to rise from her bed, and found that somehow she couldn't, tried to speak, and found herself voiceless.
1: Breton is rather upset. He feels you are interfering with the development of a most promising pupil, said the slim one. Hornbaum must be left alone, said the stout one. You are not to investigate the case of Herdbaum. To continue is punishable by excommunication from all you hold most dear. "'My name is Elouard,'
2: said the slimmer bird.
1: "'Don't let Breton upset you. "'He's merely saying how important it
2: is.' "'We'll have you thrown to the sparrows!' Breton squawked. "'It's the good bird, bad bird routine,' Harriet thought. "'It's crucial
1: in selecting an investigation,' said Elouard, "'that you not inadvertently disrupt another, "'perhaps more crucial investigation already underway.' We trust your error was in the nature of an oversight. To the sparrows that rend and devour! To investigate birds, you must become a bird,
2: said Elouard.
1: Creatures that live to shred hope. Sleep now, Mademoiselle,
2: said Elouard, nudging Breton back towards the television. You've been warned.
3: Today. No one well, it looks like it's just me tonight. Now, if I can just... God damn it! Who couldn't? Oh, why is Overbridge doing here? What do you want? James! James! You're not gonna believe what Don Fairweather Jenkins has no, done! No! So no! sewn up my circus! Wait! You have got to listen! So not my monkeys! But... Not even my 35 cent bag of peanuts! What I have to tell you changes everything! Uh, okay, uh, how does it change? I'm
4: getting there! Jonathan Lethem is the author of Dissident Gardens and eight other novels. His fiction and essays have been translated into over 30 languages. He lives in Los Angeles and Maine. The insipid profession of Jonathan Hornbaum is narrated by Tatiana Gomberg, a New York City-based actress and audiobook narrator. She has performed off and off-off Broadway, as well as regionally and internationally. Her work in The Night of Nosferatu garnered her an NYIT Award nomination for Best Featured Actress, and her portrayal of a drone pilot in Hummingbirds earned her a Best Actress nomination through the Planet Connections Awards. She also played the leads in two seasons of classics at Theater 1010 and toured the United States with Theater Works USA. You can hear her narration work on audible.com and numerous podcasts. www.tatianagomberg.com Matteo Pendergrast, the voice of Jonathan Hornbaum. Born twenty forty seven. Birthplace New York, New York. Height, six foot five. Weight, two hundred pounds. Likes slash hobbies, reading, bikes, going for walks, swimming, friendship, family time, Eugene O'Neill, canoe, PS2, including more than 100 games. Michael Taylor, the voice of Richard DeBronck, is undeniably the greatest man in the world. He enjoys games, puzzles, and experiencing interactive theater to improve on the subtle, intricate, yet uniquely brilliant greatness of Michael Taylor's mind. C.C. James is the founder of Singularity & Co., an independent bookstore and publishing house in Brooklyn, New York, dedicated to bringing vintage science fiction and other genre pulp back to the future. C.C. James is also an anthropologist of fan culture, as well as an avid cosplayer and notable New York City nightlife personality. Find C.C. James on Twitter at, at @ccjames and at singularity Co. josiah woodson is a composer and grammy award-winning musician who has worked with the oakland east bay symphony the maconda project and the superpower horns as well as artists such as branford marcellus clarence clemens most deaf and Beyoncé Knowles. Woodson holds a bachelor's in music from the Oberlin Conservatory and a master's in music from the New England Conservatory of Music and is annoyed when people confuse impulse power with sublight drive. He lives in Paris,
3: France. Thank you for listening to The Kaleidocast, a production of the Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers who can be found at bsfwriters.com. Our sound engineers are Atticus Ryan Garten. Alicia Barrett, and Matt Mazzarella. Your hosts are Tanya Ireland-McLean as Dawn Fairweather-Jenkins, Bradley Robert Parks as Brad Overstreet, Cameron Roberson as James Earl King II, and Sam Schreiber as Sam Spellingbound. Our music is Delusion of the Fury, Act Two, Treats with Life and with Life Despite Life, Arrest, Trial, and Judgment, Joy in the Marketplace, by Harry Parch used by permission of Innova Recordings and the Harry Parch Foundation. Special thanks go out to Marcy Arlen. The Kaleidocast and all its contents are protected by a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 international license, which means you can share it all you want, but don't sell it or change it and give credit to the Kaleidocast and its authors. Go to our website at kaleidocast.nyc to comment on what you've heard here and for links to all our contributors.